The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. I have always been mad about writing, Ford Maddox Ford once wrote. It is just that the public will not read me. Nevertheless, the man soldiered on, authoring dozens of books and becoming one of modernism's leading novelists, best known today for a pair of masterpieces, The Good Soldier from 1915 and The Parade's End Tetralogy of 1924 to 1928. He was also a critic, an essential editor, and an indispensable part of the literary scene of his day, the publisher of D.H. Lawrence and Hemingway and Gene Reese and Wyndham Lewis and Ezra Pound, the friend of Henry James and H.G. Wells and Stephen Crane and Joseph Conrad, friend and co-author in that last instance. He's sometimes viewed as something of a fuss-budget or fuddy-duddy thanks in part to his role as an overseer of a younger generation's prose, and in particular— for the vicious treatment he received from Ernest Hemingway, who repaid Ford's kindness with savage attacks in print. I had always avoided looking at Ford when I could, Hemingway wrote, and I always held my breath when I was near him in a closed room. Maybe it was the odor he gave off when he was tired. End quote. He described Ford as, quote, breathing heavily through a heavy, stained mustache. End quote. And the world developed its image of Ford, an old man, wheezing, pompous, interfering with the progress of young champions like Hemingway. But Hemingway's grinding axe isn't the only tool in our shed, thankfully, because it is very one-sided. Ford's breathing, for example, was the result of a poison gas attack that he faced in World War I. Not a detail that Hemingway, who liked to claim as much valor for himself as he could, was likely to acknowledge. And Ford's own life was much more interesting and complicated than a portrait of an old used-up uncle might suggest. His marriages and love affairs were frequent and full of weird angles. His background was more bohemian than bourgeois, his worldview more artistic than aristocratic. His most famous narrator is a sad sack, but the prose in that book isn't pathetic or limp which is not to say it's robust or chest-thumping either. He writes precisely about imprecision. He writes knowingly about not knowing. He comes at the subject of complication with suitable directness. He's Ford Maddox Ford, and we have his definitive biographer, Max Saunders, with us today on The History of Literature. <music> Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here today. He's always been mad about writing. Mad, what does that mean? Mad as in passionate, intense, slightly obsessive. I think that's probably what he meant. Mad as in angry. <laughs> I've always been angry about writing. Well, probably didn't mean that, although he was angry about his reputation at times. Mad as in insane. Maybe a touch of that. What about life? This is a guy who followed his heart even when it threatened to destroy him. We will have a lot of fun asking Max Saunders about this quintessential early 20th century novelist, Ford Maddox Ford, a titan of modernism. 
That's going to be our main course today on the history of literature. And then we'll have some dessert, which is a My Last Book with Beth Ann Patrick, a.k.a. the Book Maven, who will tell us what she would like to be the last book she will ever read and why. But first, an appetizer, some book news. There's a copy of Othello up for sale. I have a copy. (laughs) Anyone want to buy that? I have a couple of them on my shelf. The one I'm looking at now was apparently purchased by me some time ago for $5.95. And frankly, I would have paid twice that. Here's one that's being offered, though, one I'm reading about in the newspaper being offered for £125,000. The value coming from a couple of historical facts. First of all, it's an edition from 1655, which has a very old edition. As it happens, that was an unusual period in British history when theater and drama had been outlawed by Oliver Cromwell. Only a few underground publications occurred in that decade. Just three Shakespeare plays were risked. What do you think they were? I would have guessed Macbeth and Hamlet, and I would have been wrong twice. It was, in fact, Othello, King Lear, and The Merchant of Venice. So that's unusual fact number one. This edition is old and and published during that particular period, 370 years old, I guess it is. And it comes from a period when publications of plays were rare. And this particular edition, I mean this copy of it, has another unusual feature. At some point in the 1690s, someone pasted in the cast list for a version of the play that was being produced. Maybe this was a a theater-goer or a producer of that play. Someone connected with the theater. We're not sure who did it. I'm imagining it being someone who saw the play and came home with a list of the cast and wanted to remember who they'd seen in the cast, and they happened to have this copy of Othello on hand or at home. So they combined their cast list with their version, something... Something something like what you do today with ticket stubs or a playbill where you tuck it into a copy of whatever play you just saw. Which is interesting, but maybe not extraordinary, except this cast happens to be one of the most famous casts of Othello ever. Not because of their acting prowess, but because they had found themselves entangled in a real-life murder mystery that paralleled the story on stage. This is worth unpacking a bit. So the woman who played Desdemona was a woman named, an actress named Anne Bracegirdle. Her Cassio on stage was played by a man named Mountfort. Anne was walking home from a dinner party one night when a 16-year-old army officer named Richard Hill, who was besotted with her, attempted to abduct her with the help of one of his friends, who happened to be a well-connected aristocrat, a baron of something or other, the fourth Baron Mohun or Mohun, whatever that is exactly. Anyway, Mountfort, the actor, heard her cries for help as they were trying to push her into their chariot, and he recognized that it was his fellow actor and brace girdle, and he came to her aid and attempted to fight off her abductors. Hill assumed that Mountfort and brace girdle were lovers. Seized with jealousy, he drew his sword and killed Mountfort on the spot. Then he fled to France. 
leaving his friend to stand trial. Although his friend was acquitted, thanks to his posh connections. A journalist wrote that the evidence was strong enough to hang a commoner, but apparently not the fourth baron, Mohun, or Mohun, M-O-H-U-N, whatever that, whatever that refers to. The story that happened in real life isn't an exact replica of the story in Othello, but we do have a strong parallel here. We have the central mistake. We have, I believe this woman is having an affair with that man. The jealous murderer thinking that wrongly. And the two objects of his confusion are in fact playing characters who are mistakenly believed to be having an affair by a jealous murderer on stage. So there we have it. All the world's a stage including the streets of London, after a dinner party in 1692. And now, the main course. Max Saunders on Ford Mannix Ford. After this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Max Saunders, an interdisciplinary professor of modern literature and culture at the University of Birmingham. His books include Ford Maddox Ford, A Dual Life, a two-volume biography, and his new work from the Critical Live series at Reaction Books, Ford Maddox Ford. Max Saunders, welcome to the History of Literature. Hello, and thanks very much for casting me in your pod. Yeah, so do, do you, what, I, I'm curious what attracted you to Ford Maddox Ford, and if you can remember the first time you read him, and, and what sparked your interest in his, him or his works? Ah, yes. Well, he wasn't one of the writers I studied as a as an undergraduate in Cambridge, but his name kept coming up in connection with other writers mm, like Ezra Pound mm-hmm. yeah. Conrad, so I got intrigued. Um, and then when I went to Harvard for a master's, his novel, The Good Soldier, was on the syllabus for one of the courses, and it was that that really made me want to read more. Right. Right. I, I had kind of the same experience. I, I, I'm guessing a lot of people do. You you read Hemingway or D.H. Lawrence or Conrad or something, and then there, Ford seems to keep popping up as somebody who was helping them or, you know, a, a friendship with them. And, and then the good soldier kind of seals the deal <laughs> that this is somebody worth learning more about. But what made you decide to write a biography of him? 
Well, it was partly what happened after that. I mean, I read The Good Soldier, and that was published during the First World War, as you know, and it sounds like it should be about the war, but but of course it isn't. And then I moved on to Parade's End, the, the series of four novels mm. that Ford did write about the war, and I was really bowled over by them as well. Mm. Um, and like many British school kids, I'd been saturated in the, the history of the First World War and the poetry and the memoirs. But what Ford makes you see is how little good fiction there is about it. And, and those novels in Parade's End are among the best in English, I think, mm. and certainly the best by an English writer. Right. And when you set out to write your original biography, the two-volume one, were there biographies out there? Was there anything about four? Was there new materials you could draw upon? Or what made you realize that it was time for a new biography? Well, I suppose it was more of a, a critical biography in, in, in essence, that one. I mean, I was convinced that Ford's writing really mattered. Yeah. And mm -hmm. was surprised by how little good work there was on it then. And so I decided to do my PhD on him um, when I came back to England. And it was while I was working on that, which wasn't a biography, but, but just a critical study of his work, I, I was asked by Oxford University Press if I wanted to write his biography. And it was really flattering to be asked. And I didn't have any definite plans with what to do um, with the next few years of my life at that point. So, so the idea really grew on me. And, and you're right. I mean, there had been several biographies of Ford by then, and some of them were, were very good. But the problem was that the more sympathetic ones had little to say about the writing, whereas the most substantial one by the American um, writer Arthur Meisner had started out from his interest in Ford's writing, but ended up being very negative about the man. Yeah. And he called it The Saddest Story, which was the title Ford had wanted for The Good Soldier originally. But Meisner sort of turned it around into a description of Ford as a man undone by some kind of tragic flaw mm. who couldn't accept the, the truth, whether about himself or about anything else. And it came from treating Ford as if he were a biographer himself rather than a novelist. You know, yes, he used material from his own life and put portraits of people he knew in his novels, which all novelists do. But he changed some of the details, which novelists do as well. They're not in the business of telling the truth. That, that's really what fiction means. You know, but Meisner wasn't going to let him get away with that. Mm, right. Uh, and, and I wanted to make a different case for Ford's writing. The, the important thing wasn't just to treat each book like a sort of Romain à clay, you know, and read it like a detective trying to unlock the secrets of who the original people were and what the original actions were behind it, though that has its interest too. Um, but the main point seemed to be what Ford made of them and how he transformed them and what those transformations meant as well. Right. And yet, from everything I've read, he does seem to have had kind of an uneasy relationship with facts when he's recounting his life or or explaining himself and that kind of thing. Did you find that you were able to nail him down, so to speak, for a biography or or was there was it kind of slippery to to unpack Ford from the the myth or the the misnomers about him? Yes, that's a terrific question. I mean, um, nailing Ford down is certainly a hard thing to do, but I think not because he's untruthful, but because he's very complicated. Mm. And I suppose there, there were two main things that really got him into trouble in his life. One of them was women. Uh, and by our standards now, there there wasn't anything very remarkable about his relationships. He was really what we'd call a serial monogamist, just slightly ahead of his time, I guess, with four main relationships lasting about a decade each. 
But there had been a big scandal just before the war. When he and his wife Elsie became estranged, he became involved with Violet Hunt, who was another novelist and also a suffragette. And Ford's wife Elsie refused a divorce, but Violet insisted on a marriage. And, and so that did lead to quite a big scandal. Ford, first of all, went to prison for a few days, which was bad enough over contested payments to Elsie. And then he and Violet came up with this rather strange plan for him to go and live in Germany to become a German citizen, which his father had been, so he could get a German divorce and marry Violet over there. But no one was able to explain how that would help if he came back to England, where he'd still be married to Elsie. So it's not, not clear exactly why they were trying to do this. They perhaps wanted to scare Elsie into trying to divorce him first, but it didn't work and the citizenship plan didn't work either. So in the end, they just came back and said they were married. And then one of the papers referred to Violet as Mrs. Hoofer, Ford's original surname was Hoofer. And then Elsie sued the paper and there was a big court case. And it was just the kind of publicity they were trying to avoid. But of course, it gave Ford a very bad reputation in England. People started thinking of him as a liar and a womanizer. And it stuck. And it was really decades before the British literary establishment got over that and, and, and I think could sort of see him in a more realistic way. Right. So it, it seems like there are two conceptions I have of Ford, and they seem to clash. And one of the conceptions I have is that he was born to a family of artists in a kind of bohemian uh, atmosphere. He was a modernist who was eager to experiment with new forms. He was certainly a, a patron of many of the modernists that, that you know, ended up uh, uh, kind of reinventing literature or moving it forward, so to speak. And then he also had these entanglements and relationships, as you said, he was sort of ahead of his time in uh, getting married and remarried. And yet he also seems to be more like a dad or an uncle or he there's there's something about him that seems grown up or mature or sort of domesticated in a way that D.H. Lawrence and Ernest Hemingway weren't. Or I don't know if that's just a function of his age or if he had a kind of uh, work ethic or maybe it's because he was an editor while they were uh, submitting their fiction or what it is about him. But do you have an opinion on whether either of those is closer to reality? Was he uh, was he one of those people who was kind of born old or was he more of a, a renegade firebrand than that would suggest? Well, I called my, my first um, biographical work on him a dual life. And you can guess what my answer is going to be, really. Yeah. I mean, I think I think both of them are true. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's partly, I mean, you're right that, that uh, a lot of writers did think of him as a, an uncle-like figure. H.G. Wells referred to him as the only uncle of the gifted young, which is a lovely description. <laughs> and it's Partly, I think that he was, you know, he was someone who came to adulthood before the First World War, whereas a lot of the writers he's, you know, remembered as associated with were ones who were quite a bit younger than him and, mm. and really started their literary careers after the war. So he was a kind of older figure for them, and often one who was advising them and helping them and publishing them in his magazine, The Transatlantic Review in Paris. And he tended to, you know, he would refer to them as les jeunes, the, the young, who and, and obviously enjoyed having a kind of circle of admirers 
around him like that. But I think even as a as a younger person, I mean, he was brought up in a very bohemian sort of context, and his grandfather Ford Maddox Brown was was a painter who you know was very sort of estranged from the the artistic establishment in Britain, the the Royal Academy and, and organisations like that. And Ford inherited that sense, I think, of of the artist as a kind of outsider as well. Mm. Was he independently wealthy, or where did he fit in the class system? That's really difficult to answer. I mean, he he probably sounded very upper middle class. I mean, you can hear recordings of his voice, and, and it certainly did sound like that. But he didn't really fit into the British class system. He, I mean, he never had much money. His father was a German emigre who left Germany as a young man, was obviously very intelligent and ended up being the music critic of the times. So was sort of part of the establishment in that way, but a champion of Wagner, which was kind of not very um, establishment when he was doing it. You know, and it meant Ford was always brought up with artists and musicians around from very early age. Some of the German family were quite wealthy and he inherited a little bit of money in the 1890s from them. Um, so that was the only time he sort of had, you know, any kind of wealth of his own, but it wasn't very much. And when he um, left his first wife, that you know, he he lost all all of that. So most of his life, he lived on on his writings or on a little bit of money provided by his partners, like uh, Violet Hunt or the painter Stella Bowen after the war, who had a little bit of money herself from her Australian family. Mm. But but he was never well off. He he had a successful period in the 1920s when his Parade's End novels sold very well in America. And that was the only time really that he was, you know, reasonably well off, but, but you know, not not particularly so. Mm. And was it foreordained that he would head into a life of letters? I, I read in your book about how his grandfather wanted to have genius grandchildren, and you can imagine that... Ford Maddox Ford wasn't planning to become a, an office clerk or anything, but was was literature always calling to him or was he exploring other potential avenues? He was obviously talented in, in several different fields. He used to paint a little bit. It would have been impossible to avoid, really, in that family because his mother was a painter as well as his grandfather. But what he thought very seriously about was being a, a musician he composed mm. a, a lot of songs that, that were very charming and um, you know sort of in the idiom of parlor songs of the 1890s and he thought of enrolling in music school to to study for that when his father died his mother was was very hard up and and it wasn't clear what he was going to do and he thought of enrolling in the civil service actually advised by his uncle who was William Michael Rossetti the brother of the poet's Dante Gabriel Rossetti and Christina Rossetti. William Michael Rossetti had been in the civil service too, but Ford didn't pursue that and, and I think decided fairly early on that, that writing was what he really wanted to do. He obviously had a, a real talent for it from an early age. Mm. And one more question about him, I guess, before we turn to his experience as a as an editor and, and a writer. What kind of personality did he have? Was it when he when you read his memoirs, he comes across as very measured and reasonable and kind of not too volatile, let's say. But was that what he was like in real life? Are people commenting on his placidity and his his temperament or or was there more storminess than that might suggest? That's quite a difficult question to answer as well. 
um, one one of the really striking things when I was doing the research for the the biography was how many different stories there were about Ford. He he was obviously a very kind of engaging and arresting character. And a lot of the people who met him felt they had to write something about him, mm. you know, which is fantastic for a biographer. But, but of course, they're all very different and they all give a very different sense of, of what he was like. And some of them portray him, you know, as, as you've described as someone very sort of placid and often sl- slightly ponderous. He, he was physically very large and, and, you know, probably moved quite slowly and um, spoke quite quietly. But, but others portray someone much more mercurial and 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 quite sort of agitated. I think two qualities that that come across a lot in the stories are how clever he was. I mean, he was obviously very sharp and and could come out with these brilliant comments about things. Conrad described him as omniscient, mm. and and what his childhood friend Olive Garnett said, his lordly air is caviar to me. You know, she just loved these sort of Olympian pronouncements he would come out with. You know, and often he'd be striking a pose or, or you know, just hear, wanting to hear what things sounded like. But he did it very, very cleverly. But he was also very funny. And that doesn't always come across in the biographies, I think. But uh, but Graham Greene, who who met him late in life and was a great admirer of his work, said he, he writes out of a, a sort of hilarious depression, which which I think really captures the quality of a lot of those memoirs, you know, where they're, they're often dealing with quite gloomy subjects right. and, and in his early life he was you know he had a lot of i mean he had a, n- a very bad nervous breakdown in 1904 and had to go off to germany and undergo various sort of agonizing nerve cures of different kinds and because his father had died so young i think ford felt he was likely to drop dead unexpectedly at any time you know and, and seemed to have a lot of morbidity because of that in a curious way having survived the first world war where he had a a very rough time he was shell-shocked or or what was called shell shock at the time then um, very badly concussed when a shell exploded near him and his lungs were badly damaged possibly by gas or, or by the freezing weather and he he felt, I think, that he almost had died in the first war, and in a way that took the pressure off. And the post-war forward seems much more relaxed and 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 sort of less anxious about life. Mm. But uh, even when he's describing the the kind of anxious, depressed times, he, he's wonderful at bringing out the absurdity of it. And and there, even those passages are very funny. Um, I mean, there's a wonderful scene where he describes going to see his doctor. Dr. Teb, who um, has this weird method of treating him, which is by telling him he's going to be dead in a month. And Ford just gets up and sort of (laughs) marches off to Piccadilly Circus and is walking across the streets there, you know, the most dangerous bit of London, even then, saying, you know, I will not be dead in a month. I will, you know, and, and it's as if that that thought and the need to to resist it then enables him to get better. <laughs> right. And speaking of sort of unusual circumstances in living your life, I read a, an article by Julian Barnes where he said Ford must have been one of the few husbands subject to a court order at the start of his marriage forbidding him from having conjugal relations and also to a court order at the end of it insisting that he perform them. So, uh what what exactly happened there? <laughs> Yes, no, that's a, a lovely way of putting it. Well, it was a very romantic story when Ford was young. He fell in love with his childhood sweetheart, Elsie Martindale, who had been at school with him in, in this very sort of progressive 
school they were both sent to in Folkestone, where you know the languages were sort of English, French, and German, and the lessons were conducted in all three. And they wanted to get married, but Elsie's family, who were were fairly well off and and sort of ran a chemist business, refused and tried to stop the marriage. And so Elsie eloped with Ford, and they went off and married secretly in Gloucester. And and the father was so furious he tried to get Elsie made a ward of court, or uh-huh. did get her made a ward of court to try and get the marriage undone or or stopped right. in some way. But it didn't work. I mean, there was a court case, and and the judge sort of you know reprimanded them for lying about their age. But it was too late to do anything. So parents-in-law had to resign themselves to the situation. But but that was where that sort of court order came from. Um, and then the second one was when he was trying to get divorced from Elsie about fifteen years later. And part part of the process was you know that she sued for what was called the restitution of conjugal rights in other words sort of asking or or demanding that he comes back to the to the marital home uh, which he didn't right okay and then we still have a couple of uh other relationships we haven't touched on much there was stella bowen who was an australian painter and and barnes also had a quote of hers where she said that ford had a genius for creating confusion and a nervous horror of dealing with the results which I don't know if you think that's accurate for him generally but I can kind of imagine why their relationship ended well in, yes i mean in, in a way it's an uncharacteristic comment of stella bones who was clearly a, a wonderful person and and incredibly generous in her view of Ford. She wrote a beautiful book about her life, and most of it is is about their relationship called Drawn from Life, which gives a a, a wonderful portrait of Ford and is, you know, very sensitive about what it meant to him to to be a writer and the kind of writer he was. You know, and she was very committed to him and his work. But that's one of the few moments in the book where she's at all critical of him and, you know, and clearly there was a lot of truth to that remark from her point of view. You know, she was very capable and was doubtless left to deal with a lot of the practical problems of their domestic kind of arrangements. They lived in a very rural cottage just after the war and tried to keep animals, pigs and, and chickens and ducks and things. And the, the animals were always escaping into the neighbor's fields. And Stella was the one who would have to go and round them up and, you know, was also looking after their daughters. So, so I think that's what she meant, you know, whereas Ford wasn't to be disturbed while he was writing. And, and if, if he got worried by things like that, he would not be able to concentrate on his work. So I think that's what she meant. But it was a very successful relationship that lasted for over a decade and and really got Ford back from someone who was in very bad shape after the war, not really able to write successfully and wasn't in very good health. And she got him you know, healthy again and and back to writing at his best in the 1920s, really. Mm. They lived mainly in Paris, but also some of the time in Provence, you know, which they both loved. Um, she always said that um, it was so important to them both to have a beautiful view, never mind, you know, if the house didn't have all the mod cons and uh, it was nightmarish in other ways. Yeah. He's so praised for his critical intelligence. And again and again, you see that where his literary instincts and his judgments are visionary and seem to be unerring. And yet 
when you hear the stories of his own life, there seem to be so many, either so much indecision or missteps or comical things that happened to him. And I'm wondering what made him so good at literature and so bad at life, if that's a fair characterization? Or do you think that's how he viewed himself as kind of this absent-minded professor type who could who could read a story and know immediately if it had quality or what what it needed in order to bring it to the public, but at the same time seems to have not been the the, the person you would turn to in a crisis, so to speak, if your house was on fire. Well, I think it's certainly true that he had that that gift for evaluating writing really quickly and and accurately. I mean, his editorial judgments are extraordinarily good, and and it's often been said that the people he published particularly in the English Review, the, the magazine he set up in London in 1908, you know, really helped to define modernism for later generations. I mean, it was there that he put writers like Henry James and Joseph Conrad together with some of the new writers he was really discovering and launching in serious literary context, people like Ezra Pound and Wyndham Lewis and also D.H. Lawrence. So he was a fantastic editor. And there's a wonderful story Douglas Goldring tells. Goldring was, was a young writer who worked with Ford on the English Review and remembered being taken to the music hall with Ford. I think it was the Shepherd's Bush Empire where they'd sit in a, in a box there and Ford would have a sort of basket of manuscripts and he'd just read a paragraph or two and then throw them into the, yeah. the accept you know <laughs> pile if, if he liked them. So I think he did have that kind of judgment and was a very great critic. I, I don't think it's true that he was bad at life exactly. I mean, I know what you mean. He, and, but it's partly that he was quite sort of self-denigrating when he mm. writes about himself or, you know, makes fun of himself a lot. And so that does sort of, I mean, that's where that impression comes from, I guess. But, he, you know, he lived with some amazing people. He, he was friends with many of the best writers and artists of the 20th century, a lot of whom we've mentioned already. And he wrote some of the best books. Yes, he had his problems. But, you know, I think there was a lot of happiness as well, particularly with Stella Bowen and, and also with his final partner, um, Janice Biala, mm. who was a really interesting character. She was someone Ford met when he was 52 and she was only 26, so half his age in 1930. But she was a, a very talented painter, probably the best artist he was involved with, who had a very distinguished career as a painter in New York and Paris later on, after the Second War. And they just had the most amazing life, again, in Paris and New York and Provence, um, you know, with all the writers and artists Ford knew and, and some of whom she knew as well. So I wouldn't say he was bad at life. It's just that his life wasn't always easy. And, and of course, the time he was living through was the time of, you know, the Great War, the Depression, the, yeah. when it wasn't always easy to make a living as a writer. Hmm. Let's take a quick break and then come back and talk about Ford Medics Ford's writing. Okay, we're back. So Ford, Maddox Ford, when I think of his contributions to literature, I think of his editing and his literary friendships almost as much as his own writing. And he was surrounded by uh, geniuses, basically, but he was also writing a lot of fiction on his own. Did he consider his own work on a par with those of uh, D.H. Lawrence and Joseph Conrad and so on? Was Did he feel like he was in their league? 
That is an interesting question. I think the answer to that has a lot to do with age as well. I mean, the writers he was most in awe of were older ones like Henry mm-hmm. James and Joseph Conrad. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he ever lost that sense of awe about their work. So he, it, it probably would have been difficult for him to think of himself as as their equal. Though, though I think there were times when he, in the 20s when he was writing at his best in novels like Parade's End, where you can hear him sort of echoing and and as it were, going the distance with those writers. With the younger writers, it was a different relationship. I mean, his relationship with Lawrence was extraordinary. Lawrence was one of the writers that, you know, that Ford read when Lawrence's partner, Jesse Chambers, sent some stories to the English Review for Ford to look at. And he immediately thought, well, poems first and then stories. And he immediately thought they were brilliant and, and published them. And then Lawrence gave him the manuscript of his first novel, The White Peacock, to look at. And apparently they were on a bus and and Ford shouts into Lawrence's ear, it's got every fault that the English novel can have, but then adds, you've got genius. (laughs) You know, and and he said something very similar about the second novel, The Trespasser, which he also read, describing that one as a rotten work of genius. Um, and, and Lawrence was really disturbed by this and, and held off publishing The Trespasser for a long time because of Ford's criticism, which he he sort of internalised. So there was clearly something about Lawrence that disturbed Ford and, and that he didn't feel sort of he could endorse fully. But but he really, you know, but he was absolutely unequivocal about the genius yeah. in him and, and was clearly right about that. I guess that kind of begs the question, did Ford view himself as... Well, I am technically aware. I know what, you know, I I can identify flaws in works, but I don't have this kind of magic that someone like D.H. Lawrence does, or I don't have this this genius as my grandfather was hoping that all of his grandchildren would have. Or did he think, well, I'm a fellow artist and this is what I do and I can invent stories and I have just as much creative juice as any of these others. Do we have anything that would shed light on that in his writings or his letters, or was he too self-deprecating to kind of spell that out for us? He is usually self-deprecating, but there are a couple of moments, you're right, when he reveals a sort of ambition to to write something that's, that's as good as those other writers. And I think when he was writing well, he did know it. And you can tell that that the writing in some of the books, particularly The Good Soldier, but I think also in Parade's End and and some of the memoirs, is is sort of supercharged in a way that a lot of the writing isn't. He was a very prolific writer, one has to say that. I mean, he wrote more than 80 books altogether. And you can't expect someone to keep up the kind of, you know, the white heat of of (laughs) achievement through all of those. He wrote a lot of very good books and some of the early books on London and England and the English are beautiful and, and you know, full of wonderful stories, I have a lot of good writing in. But it's those novels, I think, where, you know, the writing really takes off. And I think he, he knew that and he, he later described The Good Soldier as, as he puts it, my one novel, yeah. you know, out of more than 30 novels. So he, Yeah, he knew what would last. Yeah, I think so. One of the things that also comes across in Ford's life is that he seems to have been very generous in helping others and facilitating their work. And if he was enthusiastic about someone, that he seems to have had no problem promoting them and, and so on. But did they return that or were they kind of 
dismissive of his fiction and and more hoping to use him through his role as an editor to get their own work published. Yes, I mean, we tend to think of writers as prone to envy of each other, don't Mm -hmm. we? And, And Ford is an odd case in that he seems to have been completely free of it. He said that his grandfather, Maddox Brown, had said to him, Fordy never refused to help a lame dog over a stile, never lend money, always give it. Beggar yourself rather than refuse assistance to anyone whose genius you think shows promise of being greater than your own. Mm. Um, And Ford really did that, didn't he? You know, as as you're saying, he, he would really sort of go out of his way to help other writers. I mean, he even moved out of his own house so that Conrad and his wife could have it at one point, you know, when they started collaborating, which they did over about 10 years. And, you know, he devoted a lot of his life to working with and and for Conrad like that. And, you know, all that helped to younger writers, which was, was very sort of thankless often, literally. I mean, because a lot of them got very angry with him because they resented being helped so much. Right, right. Uh, you know, that, that often happened. Not all of them, and some of them were, were, were incredibly grateful. Jean Reese is an interesting case because she was initially quite bitter about Ford. They had a, a brief affair in the mid-1920s, and, you know, and it left her very angry when it ended. But later in life, she came back to what help Ford had given her as a writer and how useful it was. And she remembered, you know, some of his advice about how to keep cutting and cutting everything and 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 how if you couldn't get something right in English, you had to translate it into French and then back again into English. And somehow that would, you know, make it work differently and free it up. Mm. So she recognized and, and, you know, was ultimately very generous about his generosity to her. But he was very unusual in, in that respect, I think. The older writers tended to know Ford when he was a very young man. So I don't think they had much sense of what his literary destiny was going to be. You know, when when he started collaborating with Conrad or when he met Henry James, and those were both in the 1890s, he was mostly writing poems or books about art and artists. So he looked like he was going to be a kind of British man of letters of some kind, you know, not a modernist novelist. And Mm. there's no way they could have seen that coming then, I think. Whereas the younger writers who sort of lived through the period of modernism with Ford often did really admire him. Rebecca West, for example, said that The Good Soldier had set the pattern for more than half the novels that were written since. She could have mentioned books like The Great Gatsby, which is is very close to The Good Soldier in lots of ways, though she didn't. Mm, Yeah. Well, we tend to think of, I think, modernist writers as being kind of young bomb throwers or the the barbarians at the gate kind of thing, willing to overturn the the established order. But Ford was born in 1873, the good soldier he was working on in 1915. So he would have been 42 when he was writing that. And, And even though I think sometimes I sort of confused in my mind, well, he was seeing all of the writing that was coming out and he wanted to kind of get on board that train, so to speak, he actually was ahead of it. So he's seems like he's more of a bridge between the Henry Jameses and Joseph Conrads and writers like James Joyce or Ernest Hemingway. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, he said he sat down on the day he was 40 to start The Good Soldier. I and mean, you're right, it didn't come out for a couple of years after that. And he sat down to show what I could do, he said. you know. So he, he seems to have had a sense that the, the writing he'd been doing before then didn't really show what he could do and that, that he had a better book in him. Yeah. And when he died in 1939, was there already the sense that this was someone who was a man of letters and who wrote a masterpiece, The Good Soldier, or did that critical reappraisal begin after his death? It seems like somebody who's written 80 books, it, it might take some time for people to absorb exactly what his achievements had been. Yes, I think the reappraisal happened differently both sides of the Atlantic, so that's that slightly complicates the story, but but the main sort of place it was happening was in America, and and actually what happened was that the novels of Prezen were republished before The Good Soldier in 1950 and put together in one volume by Knopf, and that sort of got people looking at Ford again. And then the year after that, they, Knopf did a, a reissue of The Good Soldier and got a group of intellectuals to endorse it on the back, saying Ford's The Good Soldier is one of the 15 or 20 greatest novels produced in English in our century. Mm. You know, and it was signed by people like Arthur Meisner and um, Graham Greene, Alan Tate, and Leonid L, several others, John Crow Ransom. And that sort of really sort of kick-started a, a revival in Ford, I think. In Britain, Penguin had reissued both Parades End and The Good Soldier in 1948, and, and it, that did the same over there mm. as well. But it was those novels, I think, that, that were always seen as, as central to his reputation, and it's only much later that people have gone back and started looking at some of the earlier books again. Right. Okay, so let's talk about your books. Your earlier two-volume work on Ford, I think, is something like 1,400 pages, and this new one is less than 200 I'm wondering if you found it to be challenging to boil down Ford into this smaller package. Was there things on the cutting room floor that you you agonized over, or did it seem like easy for you to to readjust your focus and deliver a briefer book? Mm. I was quite surprised how how it wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be. I mean, I I, I did sort of have visions of, you know, those agonies over the cutting room floor. But yeah. but it was obvious that it was going to be such a shorter book that I couldn't couldn't get there by by just sort of right. trying to cut down what I already had, that it had to be a completely new project. And that's what I wanted to do. I mean it's very much a reappraisal of Ford's life, taking in not just that that earlier biographical work, but a lot of the critical work that's been done since. And the and the reaction series it's in is called Critical Lives. So it's partly a, about Ford as a critic and about a, a life sort of lived in criticizing other literature because he was a brilliant critic as well, and that's mm. really important in his story, I think. And what I tried to do really was put in the foreground something that touches on some of your other questions really which is the idea of impressionism mm. because critics didn't know what to do about the idea of impressionism in literature for a long time i mean there was a lot of writing about it at the turn of the century and into the 1920s but then it rather went out of fashion and and this sort of 
myth really emerged of of modernism making a complete break with the 19th century and doing things very differently and so then if you were writing about Ford what you had to do was show how he was a modernist and you know there are ways in which he's doing things that that it makes sense to think of like that but it wasn't really how Ford thought of it and it's partly because people didn't talk about modernism then modernism is famously a retrospective Mm. category that, that you know we read back into the period I mean people did talk about modern modernist and modernism in some ways then often they were talking about religion when they said modernism sometimes they meant modern literature but it wasn't thought of as a movement in the same way that we now think of it whereas what ford thought the movement he was involved in was was what he called impressionism Mm. he saw writers like james and conrad and that older generation and in fact it goes back to the mid-19th century and to flaubert and maupassant in france and turgenev in russia those were the people who sort of originated Impressionism. And Ford sees himself as kind of carrying on in that line and also sees later writers that we now think of as modernists like Ernest Hemingway or even Ezra Pound as as carrying on doing Impressionism in their different ways. Mm-hmm. And, and it's odd because, you know, in some ways you can see that as, as that sort of bridging movement between Victorian realism and modernism. But it's right. also carrying on alongside modernism too in, in quite a complicated way. And it's that sense of Ford as not just as an Impressionist, but as someone who really defines Impressionism and writes endlessly about it. I mean, he's the one who almost coins the term in in the British criticism dealing with that period. Um, and writes, you know, wonderfully about Impressionism as a theory or as a practice, as well as writing Impressionist works himself. And he has such a, a strong background as a painter. And it seems like one of the places where, uh, I mean, I think a lot of times the development of of literary movements is running in parallel or a little ahead or a little behind developments in the visual arts. But this seems like a an instance where they were very conscious of what had changed in the world of painting and what that would mean for writers who were in a similar zeitgeist and also looking to adopt some of those ideas or just were naturally drawn to them because they were experiencing the same things that painters had experienced or maybe that painters had shown them the way. But Stephen Crane is another writer we haven't talked about that really kind of fit into that almost naturalistically and Ford seems to have been a, a friend or a, a fan of his as well. Absolutely, yes. I mean, there was this strange moment when Crane, too, was living in that same bit of southeast England on the coast, you know, with James and Conrad and, and Ford, and they did all know each other. And H.G. Wells was a near neighbour and described them as a, a ring of foreign conspirators plotting against the English novel. <laughs> um, but but Crane too Ford saw as one of these impressionists. Well, what, one of the things I should have said earlier is that I think what's really distinctive about Ford's writing, and, and this is really what he means by impressionism, is is trying to capture how many different things are going on in someone's mind at the same time. Mm. You just get this wonderful sense of of the complexity of the mind and of of, the, of these sort of glimpses of things seen out of the corner of the mind's eye you know that that you don't fully become conscious of but they're they're not quite the unconscious either it's not not quite the same as the freudian view of the mind ford sometimes talks about subliminal noticings or you know the subliminal self or the under self he calls it so it's that sense of things that are just below the radar of consciousness but almost there 
Uh, and he's wonderful at capturing that. And I think that's what he meant by impressionism, you know, trying to convey that sense of all these sort of um, impressions coming in from outside and registering or almost registering on the mind and trying to convey what the experience of that flow is is really like. And he thought Crane was fantastic at that as well. Mm. And it seems like a, a turn away from the omniscience or the objectivity, uh, just as in painting, instead of saying, well, this is this is the most realistic portrait I can give you. It's almost like a photograph versus the Impressionism saying, well, this is what is seen in my mind's eye. And this is a, a uh, it has a subjective view to it. And it does seem like you know, if you look at a Victorian novelist or a, a Leo Tolstoy or a George Eliot, it seems like they know so many things. And Ford Maddox Ford's most famous book, The Good Soldier, is really about not knowing. Yes, absolutely. That, that's right. I mean, people talk about the inward turn in, in modernism, and and this is very much an example, that sort of shift away from the external world to the process of perceiving the world. And that, again, is what Impressionism really means, whether it's in paint or, or literature. It, it's strange. I mean, Ford, of course, knew about the Impressionists in paint. But I think when he talks about Impressionism in literature, he's, he means something different. You know, he's not thinking about, about trying to translate Impressionist painting into literature. Because, of course, you know, painting had moved beyond Impressionism by then. And there's mm. some irony in Ford calling himself an Impressionist at exactly the point where the Bloomsbury group are starting to talk about post-Impressionism when Roger Fry had that famous exhibition in London in 1910, you know, called um, Cezanne and the Post-Impressionists. Uh, uh-huh. And Ford was was absolutely aware of those developments in painting. And um, I mean, when Janice Biala painted a, a lovely portrait of him in the 1930s, he sprawled in a deck chair reading a book about Cezanne, you know, so yeah. <laughs> they knew Picasso and Matisse and and you know, loved the, those developments in post-Impressionist arts as well. Well, we have in the past recommended to listeners who are interested and have, have not experienced Ford yet and are looking for a good place to start. We've recommended The Good Soldier, and I've also found his memoirs to be very excellent and enjoyable. And now we can add a third a uh, potential gateway, which is your book, Ford Maddox Ford, from the Critical Live series by Reaction Books. Max Saunders, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Not at all. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. And finally, we have Beth Ann Patrick, the book maven, who joined us for a discussion of her podcast, Missing Pages, and an updating of Harold Bloom's Western canon. After our conversation, I asked her about her choice for a last book. Okay, we are here with Beth Ann Patrick, host of the Missing Pages podcast and book lover extraordinaire. Beth Ann, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. It can either be a book that exists or one that has not yet been written. I love this question so much, Jack, because I have often asked authors in interviews about their Desert Island book. Mm -hmm. And this is a very nice way of refining it. And because of that refinement, I do have an answer, which is, a series. I'm cheating a little. Mm. I want to spread things out as long as possible. <laughs> yeah, right. Delay the inevitable. 
<laughs> right? This is going to be my last <laughs> book. I've got to keep it going. And so it's a series. It's a 12-volume series. So you might be closer to guessing it now. And that is Anthony Powell's A Dance to the Music of Time. Mm, mm-hmm. His great work his great 12-volume series about the 20th century. And I'm saving it for my dotage, so right before I die, uh, because I think it's going to be so fascinating to read so much about a century that I did spend part of my life living in and a century in which so much happened. And I also think that Powell will probably make me mad in some parts of it because, you know, I'm not sure if he was technically a conservative. Um, I believe he was, um, but he really had a very um, aristocratic Mm -hmm. uh, upper class background. He was in the British army during World War II. He was in British military intelligence and he traveled a great deal. And, you know, I think he will keep me um, alive (laughs) (laughs) because I'll be, you know, mad and mad and excited and delighted at in different measures at different spots in in the series. So I think that will be a terrific um, thing. And I just love. I just have to mention to your listeners some of these titles. I mean, everything from Casanova's Chinese Restaurant. (laughs) <laughs> to books do furnish a room. Um, come on, his titles are great. There's going to be so many things to look into and look up. Um, it's going to keep me breathing a little while longer. So there you go. You know, that's wonderful. So many people, when it's spoken like a true critic, I have to say, because it reminds me of that story of of Dr. Johnson when he was, I think he had a stroke or he had something. He was He was bedridden and he woke up and he was wondering if he had died. And then he thought of a line of poetry and then he thought of an improvement to it and he said yes. here I am I, I must be alive because I'm still criticizing I'm still thinking and you know a lot of people that I've talked to have chosen books maybe from their childhood or a really beloved book that they want to kind of escort them into the next phase and I love that you're picking something you don't mind something that you you already think might antagonize you a bit and something to push back against something that might be a little prickly. It tells me a lot about you that you're uh, that you want to have that experience all the way to the end. There you go. I, uh, I, I, I'm just so glad to have someone to uh, relate this to because it's something I've actually, I didn't realize until you told me this question that it's something I've been thinking a lot for a long time. Mm, there we go. Well, let's hope this doesn't happen for many, many years. Thank uh, you. <laughs> Beth Ann Patrick, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack, so much. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Beth Ann Patrick, whose podcast Missing Pages can be found wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, to Max Saunders, your go-to expert for all things Ford Maddox Ford. He has a big magisterial version of Ford's life, and he has the more recent one in a more condensed form, which is published by Reaction Books. Highly recommended, both of them. And of course, you can check out, you can also check out Ford's memoirs, which I enjoyed, and his book on Joseph Conrad, which is also worth reading, and maybe the best of all, The Good Soldier, a masterful book. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
Thank you.